I had a side hustle delivering pizza, delivering food, delivering for anything really. And while I was doing that, I realized that my side hustle can actually help out my weed hustle. And so those two in conjunction brought me into delivering cannabis on bicycles. You are now tuned in to the On The Revel podcast. We're talking cannabis, business, and culture. Breaking down the legal cannabis industry for the people. My people, my people, people. Hosted by Jacoby Holland. Real, Real talk, talk, dope, dope people, people, you know the vibes. 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 Welcome everyone to Dope People. Dope People is our digital series featuring real talk with people we've met along the way in the cannabis industry who we think are setting the gold standard. My name's Lulu. I am a host and executive producer of the show. Our other host, Jacoby, is here. I'm also joined by our content strategist and cannabis Lexus Nexus. Peter Mercado. I'm really excited to announce today's speaker, Six Nguyen, the process manager for the Betty Project based out of San Francisco. Hey, welcome. Hey, what's up? <laughs> so Six, I'm sure you've heard this a lot. I think everyone is familiar with the guy from um, the series High Maintenance, but you are actually the guy in real life, being a bicycle messenger in Chicago and New York. Tell us a little bit how you got started in the whole cannabis game. When did you start? How did that happen? When I first started smoking weed, it was like, it was still like a very quiet hush-hush thing. I had my main job at the time, which was actually in biopharmaceuticals. And I started seeing how like medicine on a corporate scale helps people. But, you know, there's a lot of like gaps in between there. Well, while I was there, one of my coworkers sold me some weed. And, and from there, I saw it as a potential to sell it to other people. I had a side hustle delivering pizza, delivering food, delivering for anything really. And while I was doing that, I realized that my side hustle can actually help out my weed hustle. And so those two in conjunction brought me into delivering cannabis on bicycles. And you're from California, right? You're from Southern California. Yeah. And so that brought me out to, to that started me off in San Francisco. And then from there, I saw the potential of being able to be mobile and go across the country. And so I, I had a residence in Chicago, I had a residence in New York, and being able to thrive out there as an Asian American, it was different, it was unique. And yeah, it was quite an experience. So what brought you to Chicago? Was it opportunity? Was it another job? Was it you know, girl? <laughs> I, asked, I had a best friend at the time and I asked him for three things. I needed three things from him. It was a place to stay, a job, and we to smoke. He was able to provide me on all three fronts. And essentially I said, you know, like, I love California, but there's this opportunity outside of there. And so quickly I was taken akin to, to the communities I was a part of, you know, being a California kid, I was really sociable. People loved how different I was. And, and to be honest, like even the groups I was in, not a whole ton of Asians, uh, not a whole ton of people of color. So I think it kind of helped in those type of communities. I like to say there's a lot of inclusivity a lot of folks brought me in as their own and it's not really about the color of your skin or your gender or even your, your sexual preference. It was about 
quality people doing quality things. And then what brought you to New York? Same thing. I mean, New York is a hustling city. There's so much opportunity, even more so like Chicago was like the stepping stone and it brought me all the way up to New York afterwards. Like I could tell you the things I've done in the tw first 24 hours of being there are like things I never did for a whole month in Chicago or like a whole month in San Francisco. <laughs> like, you know, like the hustle is real out there and, and it really, it, the bravado and personalities that I met along the way, really shapes my future. So being a bike messenger in any city is no joke, but being a bike messenger in New York is almost legendary status. Oh. I know. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's lots of legends out there still out in the streets, still doing it. And it's honestly amazing. One thing you mentioned before I thought was really interesting is you mentioned like being a bike messenger, let you through any door. How did that help? How that protect your weed game? Well, so that's, that was the cool thing about being a bike messenger is that already like the preconceived notions of bike messengers was that, well, one, whatever they're delivering, you can't really touch. So anytime I went into a building, right. And I mean, I, I didn't have anything that would make me smell unless like I just smoked a joint and I walked in the building, but pretty much the guys of being a bike messenger allowed me to walk into places and, and interact with folks that I never would have been able to if I was just like a weed delivery service, you know, really cool thing I would try to do with folks is that anytime I would be able to like, say, deliver one thing, I would either I'm delivering a package, food, paperwork, I usually strike up conversations with my clients or whoever I'm interacting with. And if I ever get the notion that they may like weed or they, they smoke weed, but you know, because what, 10 years ago, no one's going to outwardly say, yeah, 420 friendly, totally. It had to be a little bit more nuanced than that. So it was like, it was like certain code words or code phrases like, Oh, you smell really dank or you smell really good. Or, you know, one cool, like one thing I really enjoyed doing was that I was carried this pencil box and inside my pencil box was just joints. And whenever I felt like I could talk to somebody, I would ask them if they would like one of my custom pencils, you know, it's got a name on it. You should definitely try to use it, write it, write a good story. Right. Make a little thing. And most people were definitely weirded out to hear that. So <laughs> as soon as I opened up my pencil box and there was just like racks of joints, it went one of two ways. Like they could just like, Oh yeah, I'll take that. You know? And that's the start of our conversation, another conversation or like, or simply they'll just like, Oh no, no, thank you. You know? It, so it was, it was kind of a uh, being able to be being a bike messenger, giving me access to places, allowed my, allowed me to really flourish in, in my cannabis game. So you got to go directly into people's houses, into people's personal spaces, into people's offices any places stand out? Any quirky things that have happened or stories that stand out to you? I mean, a lot of the folks I've met throughout the years are pretty damn quirky. I mean, I'm quirky myself and I, and I think I'm just drawn to quirky people. I, I love them. Eccentricity is the best. Uh, one of my favorite quirky folks is, is, is a guy who actually just, he buys everything that I don't want to sell to people. He'll buy my trim, he'll buy my smalls, he'll buy my waist. And then he actually cooks it down and then turns it into tea. And I like him so much because when he gets high, he starts messaging me about his like projects, about how he wants to create these like light 
and he's also a bike nerd, but he'll get into these, uh, like a restoration of an 1893 Schwinn tandem, um, that was verified by the grandson of the Schwinn bicycle company, like, or something weird like that. And so, I mean, like, it's honestly the best, like, I love these random texts from him. So. And then what? you think is the difference, the biggest difference between the, the underground markets in each of these cities that you uh, served? Well, in Chicago, everyone is a lot chiller. Everyone's a lot nicer. Things happen. It was also not as competitive. There were a number of serves in the area, but like if somebody liked you and, and you were good on time, then you know, they'll continue to work with you as opposed to New York. I feel like if it's not this minute, it's the next minute. And if you're not in this minute, then it's going to go to somebody else. And things move a lot faster out there than they did in Chicago, which also meant there was a lot of wins and gains and losses. But, you know, it was all a lot of fun. On those differences between Chicago and New York, I know Jacoby wants some numbers what kind of volume differences were there um, or product types? Did you find any, like maybe people in Chicago, like joints versus New York, people like blunts? Uh, are there any differences like that in terms of like products and the volume? I think in Chicago, folks don't mind the range. You can have a lot of mids. You could be working with mids. You can work, be working with top shelf and exotics. I think most folks in Chicago are going to, they were definitely more easygoing about like the type of options you had. While in New York, they were, I mean, both cities were at the time, I mean, uh, they were definitely more uh, flower. I didn't have as much concentrates or extracts out there. So at the time I was mainly working with flower, but definitely in the New York market, they brought in top shelf. Like if it's top shelf, it definitely looked like top shelf. If it was mids, I knew it was mids, you know, like they definitely had to get you too. But definitely a lot higher numbers too. I definitely, there were definitely higher volumes out in New York for that same reason. I always, I've always been curious about how, the, how does the game actually work? You have like your supplier and then you have your contacts. I know for some companies, I don't know how it was for you. They'll have like a relay person. And so you'll get a text. Okay. You can pick up your stuff for the day or for however long until it lasts. And then you have a relay person who will tell you where to go and when. And then sometimes you can communicate with people directly. Just like, can you break down like the mechanics of how it worked? So I would, I would connect with my supplier. And thing is, I think I was pretty fortunate because my supplier didn't have, like I didn't have to buy a single strain in a, in a unit or in a pound, right? I could buy, in a pound, I could buy 12 or 16 different ounces of whatever. And so... Being able to get a supplier with variety allowed me a better uh, menu on my side. So when that translated to my clients, with me, it wasn't just about the money. It was about the relationship. So a lot of these people I didn't know or I, I eventually knew or I got to know. And so I would personally, they call me up, they hit me up. I would give them what kind of options I had. I'd ask them what they were into, like, what kind of night you're going to have, what you want to do with this. And then I'll give them my recommendations based off of my recommendations. I'll just, I'll deliver what I can. And I usually toss in a little bit extra because I mean, it always makes somebody makes them feel special. And I think because of that little extra jazz, it, it makes the whole experience better for them. 
So you were bud tending, delivery, customer service, all of that as an distribution, <laughs> logistics, uh, wholesaler, retail. <laughs> That's awesome. I want to switch the topic a little bit from your start to being Asian American, being specifically Vietnamese American um, in the cannabis industry. I'm Chinese. I know um, Asian culture is very anti-drugs. How was it for you in your, I'm assuming since you're from Southern California, there was a Vietnamese community that you're a part of. Like, how was that for you growing up and how was it coming out to your parents and your community? It was big. And I, I still remember the day that I told my parents and I, you know, stated in my case that weed helps me out and weed actually makes me a better person. But growing up, it was really hard. My parents came over here before the fall of Saigon. Them trying to build a new life in another country made them, you know, want the best for their kids. They wanted to be able to give them everything. But at the same time, they were afraid of breaking the law. They were afraid that the government might do something, change something about their lives. And being from Southern California, I, I remember that going through our Vietnamese ethnic town of Westminster, there was a huge communist like uh, protest at the time and seeing effigies of Ho Chi Minh being burned in the city squares, in our like city squares or like big major intersections, it was pretty scary. My dad never really telling me what he did, hiding a lot of his notable achievements because he was afraid that if things caught wind, he would, you know, the backlash would affect him. It was really hard to, um, to get to that point where I could talk to them about drugs, talk to them about uh, American culture that didn't involve, no, you can't do that kind of thing. But uh, over time, I think, yeah, what actually broke that uh, broke that stigma for me that cannabis wasn't wrong that yeah cannabis wasn't wrong was when I started hanging out with this Korean and it was the best because up until that point every time I smoked or tried to smoke I got super paranoid somebody would call me they would ask me a bunch of things and all of a sudden my anxiety levels go up the roof and nobody likes that when they're smoking but my Korean friend told me to come over and we would spend hours and hours playing video games and getting high. And I remember talking to his Korean mom and I remember Koreans growing up in my particular town, there was a lot of Koreans and I was always afraid of their moms. Just always scared the crap out of me. You know what I mean? So being in that environment, being high, being able to talk to his mom, being able to interact on a high level changed my views on acceptability and that's what really pushed forward me wanting to smoke me wanting to appreciate it more have your parents tried yet a topical or a cbd or a gummy or anything yet yeah my mom's tried a topical when she got a burn she didn't like it and i mean i know she, i mean she, i think it was like no matter what she put on or no matter what she used she was not gonna like it but uh, my older sister, who has been pretty adamant against it for most of her life, she has started to ask me for some, some edibles. And it's good. Yeah. It's good to do that. I always go with the, it's like Tiger Balm. It helps with aches and pains, like Tiger Balm. 
and uh, yeah, my, my parents have been uh, very open to it lately as well. So it's really nice to see the change that's happening because I don't think many people know there's such a big stigma in our culture because of the opium wars that happened in the 1800s and also the heroin and opium that was being run through Vietnam during the Vietnam war. So our cultures are very, very anti and they group everything as drugs, um, which is unfortunate because, you know, we have such a long history of plant healing and cannabis has been the earliest recorded in our textbooks of plant medicine. So um, I'm hoping very much and there's people like you that are helping to educate communities and, you know, teaching our family and our communities that this is not heroin. This is not opium. It's, it's, it's a different type of plan and it offers different types of healing. I have a question about being Asian in the underground. Do you think it was helpful or harmful with your business in the underground? I always like, I always try to see the positive side of things. And so I don't know how it could have harmed me. I knew there was a couple things, a couple ways that it was definitely helpful. Me being Asian, I mean, like one of the stereotypes of Asian people is that they're harmless, that they, they don't, I mean, to an extent, they may not know a lot right about uh, certain things. And so I think the harmful thing is that despite my background or despite my experience in the industry, like I'm still considered fresh and people will still consider things fresh, me fresh. But um, I also think because in general, Asians are more modest and more humble about things. And so their, their sense of uh, like pushing forward may not be the same. I mean, and even in the short, when like me being Asian, me having like Asian eyes, like squinty eyes, I think was actually pretty helpful because instead of people thinking I was stoned all the time, people just thought I was Asian. Being in like Chicago or New York where those, I mean, good amount of uh, non-Asians, they, that's, that's what I, I assume. And so like, I never really got questioned for looking so stoned or looking so distant, you know, I always had a good excuse. Like, oh, you know, just so focused on this project or I'm um, thinking about thinking forward or something. And I think because same thing, like being harmless, not actually smoking weed because of the stigmas that we, because of the stigmas we faced growing up that we were very anti-drug people assume that I wasn't into drugs and that's cool. That helped me out a lot. Um, I have a very similar experience too. It's definitely helped out of some hairy situations, but what advice would you give other Asians, Vietnamese, Korean, Chinese, East Asians who want to enter the Canada space but are still afraid to do it. Don't doubt yourself. Have confidence with your decisions we've always been good with due diligence and it's about being accountable in this space with that in mind. Also, it's about um, like we're resourceful. We've always been very resourceful folks. One thing I would definitely recommend if like you don't know anything about these companies or you don't know where to start, I would suggest looking up BCC, the Bureau of uh, Control Cannabis, Cannabis Control. Everyone's license is on that website. If you wanted to get into cultivation, you could search up cultivation licenses, distro, delivery, re retail, shit like that. Everything's out there. And I would say that's a great start. 
I, when I was fresh into the game and I wanted to meet some folks, I had a product, I had a gummy product and I basically just sent an email to everybody, saw who clicked, built conversations and relationships like that. And yeah, yeah, that's one recommendation. That's a great tip. What made you decide to transition out of the underground into the regulated space? We have many folks in our audience, in our community in New York, who have been running their game very successfully in um, New York. And now that it's been written as legal, legal um, a lot of people are considering going into that space. What made you decide to move out of the underground? Honestly, it was on the cusp of legalization, moving out of the East Coast and back to the West Coast. Um, I moved back to Los Angeles and I want to legitimize a courier service I was doing out there. So it was primarily just delivery work, no more cannabis. And when I came back to California and I saw what cannabis was like, I was visiting great, uh, traditional market shops that sold whatever they put their name on right at this point in my life i've made money with weed i love making money with weed but it was more than that it was about the plant and about how the plant can offer benefits to 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 you to to people in general so the whole like shiny coin suddenly disappeared and now i was like searching for knowledge and truth and so transitioning into the space was more so that I could grow outside of just delivery. I wanted to get into cultivation and I wanted to learn how these plants were so amazing. And what were some of the things that you did to transition? Like what were, were there things that you reached out to organizations, books? Um, what are some of the resources that you used? My favorite thing I'd love to tell my partner, my, my partner for life whenever she asks a question is, have you tried to Google it? And I think it's pretty big because, I mean, being a bike messenger and then transitioning to a recreational, to recreational cannabis space, it was a pretty new thing. And my partner, she's been in the industry for uh, almost 20 years now. And so I felt like I needed to do a lot and I, and I needed to learn a lot. And uh, so started researching a lot, but more so, I had to figure out the way in, right? I had to figure out my foot in the door. And the foot in the door was stepping into a trim room with a bunch of people and start trimming weed. It's not the most glamorous job, and a lot of people think it might be the bottom of the barrel. But to me, I was so excited. I'm still so excited. And that's probably a big reason why I have my job right now is because I love trimming weed. I love how beautiful cannabis can come out. Being a trimmer is the first step in the grand scheme of things to get weed to the, uh, to the consumers. So yeah, trimming was a way I wasn't very good at first. Like I was definitely doing terrible numbers. And when I say terrible, like in a good day, trimmers can make ideally is like a pound and a half, two pounds. And at the time I started, I think I was only doing a third of a pound. I was only, I remember it was 225 grams. And I remember that number because my partner didn't do that. She had her pound and a half and she was having a great time. And I'm sitting there just like, why, why is this not looking as nice? And why is this not as heavy? And the frustration that I went through only to realize that, yeah, it's a skill set. Yeah, I got to do it again. And I got to keep doing it again until I get better. And eventually, after what, two-ish years doing uh, being a trimmer, I moved from my 225 grams 
to doing two and a half, sometimes even three pounds. Like being able to do thirteen hundred is a pretty big number, and I'm pretty proud that I've done it a few times. So, damn, I think that also speaks to like your passion and the humility. You know, a lot of people want to jump into the cannabis space and think they're going to get X, Y, and Z amount of money, and they're going to be right at the top of the food chain. And I think being humble and honoring the plan and honoring the folks that came before you and learning, right? The fact that you're, you started off with 220 grams and you're still able to, you know, jump to three and a half pounds is, is a pretty big um, statement. So thank you for, for taking that time to learn and being passionate about that and, and putting the work in and rolling up your sleeves. We very much love and honor folks that do that because it shows dedication and it shows respect. How did you get to the Betty project? You went from doing the trim circuit to like, so this was, this job didn't even start with trimming a buddy of mine, a really well-known hash maker. His brand is called high noon. Honestly, one day, one day out of the blue, he asked me what I'm doing. And I, you know, I said, I wasn't doing much. Uh, this was, you know, near the beginning of the pandemic or like kind of near the start. And he asked me, it's like, I can't help move these things. Can you? And that's all he told me. And I showed up in this warehouse and I, I even turned to my friend when I got there or like I saw him later. I'm not sure, but I asked him, I'm like, do you know if I'm going to get paid for this or am I just going to show up for a little bit and things are going to work out? And he's like, and sure enough, like I showed up there for two and a half weeks, bridging on the three weeks. Then also, then the trim was coming up. It's like, okay, great. I'll sit in on the trim. Like I said, I don't like to be very modest about it, but yeah, I had the best numbers that day. I had the best numbers all week. I um, was able to give uh, pointers on how to run a more successful trim based off of my experiences at other other trim rooms. And um, that's kind of what started off my, started off me here by putting myself forward, by being resourceful, they took note and brought me onto the team. so, you know, and then at first it was just to, as a trim manager. Afterwards, it became distro, it became site operations, and uh, it became this whole bigger role. And when I say like process manager, like, yeah, I'm, I am working with t- like uh, 30 pounds of weed, 40 pounds of weed, 50 pounds of weed every month or so. From taking it from dry to trim through tier before it can be sent out to packaging or sold to somewhere else. The job itself, I mean, yeah, it sounds really fun. It's also a lot of work. It's not as glamorous as what people think, and that's okay because this is hard, dedicated work that the folks in this building put. And if it wasn't for their passion, I would have the same motivation as well. So I definitely work hard because these plants work hard and the people, the growers who put in forth work hard so that they can look good. Yeah. I mean, the Betty project is pretty legendary in San Francisco. Um, so it's been around at since legacy 30 years ago and it's created a craft artisanal space and everything that you talked about as an entrepreneur, just being a bike, messenger um, with weed you're applying very similar things logistics distro retail all of that so that's pretty cool that you guys got to pair up yeah it was a good match it was good it's a good community and that's the thing is like i think if i were to give 
you know, some pointers out to people in the in the legacy market, traditional market, I definitely would tell them that don't fear what's on the other side. Don't be afraid of it. It may actually give you more benefit than it will hurt. I think there's a lot of changes in this world right now that I think would be more conducive with considering how to build your brand over over time, you know, past you and not just uh, chase the money. You're talking about legacy. Let's talk about some of the differences between underground and the mainstream. What do you think is the best and worst part of each side of the fence? For underground, the best thing about being underground is the money. Like, you don't have to work for the man. The man ain't taxing you. But the worst part about it is I think that the, the loss, the accountability, like how easy a pound of weed disappears, whether that's through, you know, parsing it out or just how it just slips through someone's hands. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still work with a lot of folks who are in that mentality of things going go, go, go and not paying attention to your books and not seeing where everything is going. And then all of a sudden you're wondering like, why am I losing money? You know, and, and far too many times have I seen that paranoia set in with somebody where it's like, there should be 25 pounds and we're missing five. And it's because no one remembered to write down that the five pounds were sold the day before to who's it's, but because it was such a fast interaction, no one knows. I think that's the biggest win is, um, is being able to be accountable. So that's why I really love this side of the business. It's like, yeah, I'm not making as much money, but what I'm not earning in monetary value, I'm earning in intrinsic. I've gained so much knowledge of being able to be in this space, being able to finally be out there in the open and talk to folks. Uh, I've had other messengers who quit the game and decided to grow either commercially, residentially, or something of the like. And being able to connect with folks on that level is pretty special. And why should you, what's your opinion? Like, why should you become part of the regulated market? Knowledge, the people, the community. It's pretty cool when uh, checking out like events like Emerald Cup or High Times and seeing all these passionate folks uh, putting out their products putting out their product that's well-tested, that doesn't have trace amounts of something that may be harmful. Um, having good, clean weed is really important. I know a lot of backdoor stuff that people may get there out in the streets. Like, yeah, it's, it's good weed, but it could be better. And uh, being able to have clean medicine for folks is important being able to have, give them access to that medicine is really important. And I definitely believe that this medicine helps people and helps their well-being. That's what I support. Awesome. And what's on the horizon for you next six? Uh, well, you know, last year, I remember around 420, around this time, I set out to ride 200 or 250, you know what? It's kind of a little hazy up here. But, about, you know, a, a lot of miles, about two to 250 miles uh, for the last prisoner project to bring awareness to cannabis prisoners who, are, who still have a record, who have not been expunged of their you know, record or criminal activity. And so I actually, I wanted to be able to do something similar very soon. And 
you know, but that's in the works. And outside of that, I'll be a cannabis dad pretty soon. I'll be having a baby girl coming along. And I'm very excited because uh, both of us being in the cannabis industry, we're going to have a little wee baby and she's going to be fantastic. I love that. And just to clarify, Six is a long distance cyclist, pretty professional. I remember when I heard of your ride from LA, San Francisco to LA, um, that was crazy. So really proud that you're doing things like that and super stoked that there's going to be a baby coming soon in a couple of weeks, I think. Yeah, in about a month. (laughs) Love that. Congratulations. Thank you. I would like to say I'm really excited to honestly grow as a, as a parent, have this type of growth in my life. I think this is the next step. When we talk about like moving into the rec space, I think building our roots, building our family within the space is going to be essential. Yeah, because the future is female and these plants have so much passion with them. So I'm excited to uh, share my passion and not just a growing this plants, but also growing this kid. We tend to interview and talk to more uh, entrepreneurs like founders. And as a culture, we tend to romanticize the founders. But for you, you were doing things on your own, your own business, running things in Chicago and New York. But then when you wanted to transition, you built your network and then you kind of aligned yourself with different projects. You started trimming for XYZ and then you guys, you got connected with your friend in the Betty project. So, in starting with a company and and working with them, how did you evaluate that they were like solid and that the company had longevity and being an employee? Because I mean, we all know like the regulated industry is like all over the place and it's really hard for each of these businesses to function. So how how did you balance like negotiating benefits, um, choosing the company? Why go that route instead of starting your your own? Those kind of things. In the underground aspect, it's really easy to start your own. I mean, there's, uh, if you have a little bit of product, you can push it out wherever, whenever. And I like it because it gives a lot of freedom. In the underground, there's a lot of freedom when you're on your, on your own entrepreneur or trying to make it on your own. The rec space is more about, it's about the community. It's about the group because no one can function on their own. And if one person tries to do it on their own, it, unfortunately, I mean, it doesn't last long, whether that's because of consistency, whether or not you're account- be able to be accountable of your job, but also to have the same sanity. I know that a lot of the, the whole having paranoia setting also makes like paranoia of bad uh, moves and stuff that creates tension over time. And I've just, I've seen some folks just kind of go crazy trying to run their own business. But when you have a group of folks, you're able to uh, share responsibility, right? You're able to gain knowledge because now you're having this collective hive working together. Any one person trying to take on the plans themselves, it's, it's them embodying it. And in the, in the early 2000s, meeting master growers um, as opposed to now, like they could be a very normal one moment and if they don't like something, they'll just flip out. And it just takes a second for them to, to flip out and you won't even know it comes on nor will you know when it stops. And it's kind of a strange thing. So nowadays, I mean, 
people don't flip out as much, but there's still a lot of big egos, a lot of big personalities in this industry, especially because they did come from the traditional market because they were, they had their own reputation. And so, I mean, not a whole lot of difference, I guess, in that realm. Like there's big egos in the underground, there's big egos in the, uh, in, in the rest space. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, I mean, no, you did a great job. I, it was a, a complicated question, so there were parts of it. I guess the one part to revisit a little bit more would be in choosing those people and seeing like the vision of, of the company or, or like the product. How did you go about thinking about that? Right, right. So, you know, I know a lot of folks, a lot of folks, the reason why they still work underground is because they don't like working for the man like simple, right? The man and whatever the man may be is totally up to you. Right. For me, after working at the uh, biopharmaceuticals, that was my man. I didn't want to work there anymore. And I realized cannabis gave me the freedom to be my own boss. How I ended up picking this spot is that, uh, I got this really great bit of information, like knowledge, uh, when it comes to like working in a grow and is that, you're doing whatever you're doing for the plants. The, your passion is for the plants. It's not for the people that's in there. It's not for the politics. It's not for anybody who walks in and out. You, my goal is to, to make good plants or my goal is to, to support in the growth of quality plants. So choosing these folks, that was the forefront. And as long as we align on that, it made it really simple to decide where to go. Okay. It's not to say that, you know, adversity is everywhere and, and that, uh, that there's never a host of problems. I actually was thinking about how similar messengering and cannabis really was. I mean, like in messengering, there's terms like, you know, you get your tags or your packages and there's the next day, which is like a 24 hour, there's short and long games. There's 60 minutes, 30 minutes, it's rushes, right? And in cannabis, it's like you got a harvest coming in a couple of weeks, but now you got to make sure that the uh, cure room temperatures and humidities are on. So it's turning like into a, a day or, or you have to run to the other side of the building because somebody needs your help and you just, you're rushing around everywhere. And the biggest similarity is, is that it's always about putting out fires. Like there's never the day where something can't go wrong and the day you become too confident that something's going to be okay and you try to leave for a while, something goes wrong. So it's about putting out the fires. It's about uh, being comfortable with these heightened situations where people are going to get very intense and being able to manage. Working with bike messengers for so long, there's a lot of those folks around too. Yeah. uh, Switching gears a little bit, I know you got some dope strange, quirky, however you want to call them, stories of at least one customer going crazy, like buying your whole inventory, or then you show up to a party and then everyone just like, oh, sweet man, like, what do you got? Like, I don't want you to go without giving us one of those juicy, random stories where this series of events are unpredictable. Yeah, I, man, I, I, I was definitely the weed man, and I definitely enjoyed sharing weed, but... I remember back in LA, I remember I, uh, I was part of the, the lowbrow art gallery. Like some of the greatest lowbrow artists came through. They're just like super weird folks. And I remember like, being a wee man is like, the place always was stinky. It was always good. But you know, when you're 
tossing joints from the second story to like all these people dressed up in like latex or like horse outfits or like just like her mixed in with like Harajuku girls and like just like all of the weird LA can bring out. It's like, it's a pretty special feeling, man. Like you never felt like the weed man until you give it into a bunch of freaks. <laughs> wow. So this is like an art gallery of people dressed up and oh yeah, you're just throwing out joints. Yeah, yeah, we had, it was like, they had an event almost every every other week, every or maybe it was a month, and their themes were insane. Like, um, they had this artist, J.J. Villard, he made some of the really crazy artwork from Comedy Central, the late night stuff, it's like Supercar, Superdrive. Anyways, he came out there, and I remember they had, like, this Gigi Allen sculpture that was, like, uh that had a chainsaw and it's like chainsawing off like people's or um, like fake legs and arms and stuff. And it was just, it was just, it's super wild. And then of course, that's not just all the weirdness. Like then you go outside because we were centralized in like uh, the middle of the warehouse district in LA, like all the freaks and geeks came out from there too. So sideshows, oh man, when people start peeling out of donuts, it took 30, it took the cops 30 minutes to get there every time. So we have plenty of time to kick it and like, and burn shit. I have a um, question for you six, you know, as the East coast is coming online, like what, if you could say something to the regulators, what huge pain point are you dealing with that you would want other uh, markets coming online to think about? Invest into programming like this talk to people who have already done it talk to people who want to share their stories i know that they're out there and, and sometimes it's hard to reach i was in public affairs for san francisco mayor and uh, san francisco congress woman uh, jackie spear and i understand that it's really difficult to bridge the gap between those who have the knowledge and those who seek the knowledge so community like Programming like this, events and panels similar to this, that's the way you're going to see the most the most honesty come out, you know. Otherwise, I mean, it's, it would be about, you know, folks like us reaching out to the regulators or reaching out to uh, these, these panels who are making decisions based off of previous things that have happened. Oh. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Six at time um really appreciative of your story and sharing this with everyone in our audience on the east coast congratulations on the baby coming through soon and we can't wait to have you back thank you so much thank you